Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So the idea for this show began with a book about an ambassador to Japan, to Japan in the 30s and 40s. His name was Joseph Grew. He saw a lot of things coming that other people didn't see. And it got me and senior producer Lily Tyson thinking about the idea of the Cassandra, the person who sees something bad in the offing, and not only is disbelieved, but is often punished for being essentially, eventually right. So this is what that show is about. Uh, it's a show about Cassandras, about the original Cassandra in Greek and Trojan mythology, and some other Cassandras, including one who saw COVID coming. All of that's coming after the news. That's my prediction. I know, I know you public radio audiences hate it when we cut off an ABBA song. I get it, I get it, but that's not what we're here to do today. We're here to talk about Cassandra. Let me just quickly sort of set this up really, really fast. It's just that Lily Tyson just asked me an interesting question. Um, so when I was in college as an undergraduate in 1975, this large tranche of documents related to the decision to drop the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki had been released and in what was essentially kind of just a big survey course, American history survey course, they decided that we were going to get all get these massive wads of all these documents. This is before there was the internets. Uh, and carry them around and look at them and try to figure things out. And I got really interested in this. I got kind of obsessed with it. But I also thought, you know, there's some part of this that is not in these documents. It's basically the whole Japanese part of, part of it. But um, And I started doing some reading, and I found out there was this guy named Joseph Grew, who had been the ambassador to Japan, had been living in Japan, had figured out a lot of things about Japan. And even in 1945, he was trying to tell them stuff uh, about m maybe how this – use of atomic weapons could be avoided, or specifically how peace could be arrived at without further massive military intervention. So I got approached by HarperCollins about a book written by a friend of mine, Steve Kemper, uh, and they said it's about an ambassador to Japan in World War II. I said, oh, this is about Joseph Grew. I guarantee you I'm the only journalist who responded that way. But it got us interested. Lily Tyson had a great idea. Let's do a whole show about Cassandras. 
Uh, Cassandras are the people who make prophecies and often are not believed. Uh, and so we're going to begin with Cassandra Prime, uh, the one who comes down to us through from antiquity. And here to join us are people that we have turned to for this kind of thing in the past. Joel Christensen, professor of classical studies and senior associate dean for faculty affairs at Brandeis University. His newest book is The Many-Minded Man, The Odyssey, Psychology, and the Therapy of Epic. Amanda Reese uh, is a historian of science based at the University of York who works on the history of the future. Uh, she is the author of the book Human. So, um, Joel, I'm going to have you get us going. And for people for whom it's kind of a shaky idea, remind us, just generally speaking, who Cassandra is. Although we should probably say it depends on the source you're looking at. Sometimes she's the daughter of Priam. Sometimes she's not. Sometimes this thing happens. Sometimes another thing happens. So, I don't know. Give us a, a, a gestalt for her, I guess. All right. Thanks for having me on again. It's great to talk to you. Um, so, the, the basic story about Cassandra, and there are several different variants, um, is that she has this power of prophecy that is problematic because people don't always believe her. Um, she is, in most cases, a daughter of Priam, the king of Troy. And the reason she's important um, is that she's central for telling people um, that bad stuff is going to happen to Troy and then they ignore it. And a couple good examples are when Paris, who runs off and steals Helen and starts a whole Trojan War, shows up in Troy. He's actually sort of a, a bastard son of, of, of Priam. She says, hey, this is my lost brother. Um, we're in trouble here if he becomes part of the city. He, they let him come in anyway. She says the Trojan horse is not a gift. It's a bad idea. Um, and what happens at the end of her life um, is that she is uh, taken as the war prize of Agamemnon. So she so shows up most famously in ancient literature in Aeschylus's play, The Agamemnon, where she shows up on stage and her inability to be understood is uh, conveyed through uh, erratic behavior. Mm -hmm. Although her words are quite clear, there she tells the story um, for the first time that's clear to us um, that she got her prophetic power because Apollo, the god, was lusting after her and she offered to have sex with him if he gave her this power and then reneged on the deal. And even though he had already given her the power, um, he couldn't take it away. So that's sort of the basic outline of Cassandra. Um, but this identity is sort of like foisted on top of another character, of a princess of Troy who is really marriageable and has a completely different backstory of where she got her prophetic power. Right. And in the Iliad, my recollection is Cassandra doesn't have prophetic powers. She's no. she's the daughter of Priam and, and she's marriageable and all that kind of stuff. But I don't. Yeah. However, in, in one of the other uh, really just uh, shining sources of information about antiquity, that would be the 1956 film Helen of Troy. Uh, Jeanette Scott plays Cassandra. And let's hear a little bit of what that sounds like. A one cat. Do not seek peace elsewhere, dear brother, until first you have pacified Athena. My little Cassandra, there can be no postponement. So come along and give me your blessing for a happy voyage. I cannot bless what I see in your future, Paris. Cassandra! Cassandra, stop this. But, Father, it's true. What I see and feel is true. Go, Paris. Come, Cassandra. Come and rest a while. How can I, Mother? Why wish it hadn't been given me this agony I live with? 
So, Amanda, um, you know, in a way, our whole, I know, try to digest that and try to not to be overcome with emotion, too. But, um, Amanda, you know, our notion, the, the classical notion of a prophet seemed to be, A, someone who was, who was in touch with a different reality, B, someone who knew what was coming, but not necessarily in a way that made it evitable, uh, and C, often somebody who kind of seemed to have some other kind of impairment. I guess I'm mainly thinking of Tiresias, but maybe you could say some things about, about, about all of those markers. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, the metaphor of Cassandra is really, really important when it comes to both thinking about, you know, the way we understand different kinds of futures and the way in which we understand systems of expertise and, you know, just science and technology in our society. So Cassandra is kind of like, so as you say, you know, you've got the kind of, you've got the figure of the prophet, right? And the person who can prophesy the future because they have some kind of contact with the gods, either they've been cursed by the gods or blessed by the gods or tripped up by the gods, in whatever way, they can prophesy the future. They can tell what the future, your future fate will be. And that's, that's important because the point is that you can see the future. And the trouble for Cassandra was she could see the future, but she couldn't change it. People didn't believe it. She couldn't change it. And that's the basis of that kind of very, very old notion of being able to prophesy the future, the idea that the future can't be changed. Now, that idea of what constitutes prophecy or that idea of what constitutes predicting the future starts to shift in the kind of in the modern period, in the kind of early 20th century, when we start thinking about futures as things that we can manage. You know, we can create different kind of futures. We aren't fated to follow a particular path. We can make our own futures kind of thing. Um, and then kind of you get a kind of a more um, a more kind of, oh, God, a more technologized kind of vision of what the future might be or a more bureaucratic maybe almost that there are rules that you can apply there are systems there are methodologies that you can use that anyone can use that you don't have to be god touched in able to in in order to be able to see the future yeah although so I, really I, I, I think even now there is this idea i mean it's absolutely true on the other hand i don't know People who've seen it in Kanto know all about Bruno. And there's even I, I went I went and rewatched um, part of the Big Short, which is based on the Michael Lewis book. We'll be talking about another Michael to another Michael Lewis person at the end of the show today, Charity Dean from Premonition. But um, you know, even watching Christian Bale's uh, performance uh, as uh, this guy, I think his name is Michael Burry, who who figures out what's going to happen. He plays him in this very, maybe it's the way Michael Burry really is, don't Christian Bale, but he has the, his eyes are almost all the way closed when he speaks all the time, you know, and he does this weird thing where he closets himself in with a drum kit and starts playing these wild drum solos and somehow yeah. these things come to us. I think, Amanda, we haven't quite Relinguished oh yeah, no, no, archetype. absolutely. You're absolutely right. We still, I mean, that whole, the, 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 the almost the idea of the blind prophet is coming across there, isn't it? Those mm -hmm. half closed eyes, that kind of idea of the separation as well, right? But that's that's part of the reason why the why the metaphor of Cassandra is important, and also why it's dangerous, because it treats understanding, it treats kind of understanding the future or being able to consider the consequences of our actions. That's the crucial point: consequences of our actions. It treats looking at consequences as something that only special kinds of people can do that it's not something that ordinary people can do you know you can't kind of see what these consequences might be and i think that's problematic and i think it's dangerous again because we live in this incredibly complicated world that's kind of run by expert system you know it kind of treats science and technology then as, as, as the, or the consequences of 
science and technology, things about, you know, like climate change, like AI, all of these things where you've got kind of like Cassandra standing up to say, this is dangerous. This is potentially disastrous. This is a path we should not walk because these are the consequences. And then it's possible to dismiss them as somehow, yeah. somehow out of touch or somehow detached from reality. Right. You know, Cassandra has become a dismissive term. It's as if people have yeah. lost track of and the fact that... important gender role there as well. Right. Yeah. well although, and... although Warren Buffett has been called a Cassandra and that guy, <laughs> Michael J. Burry, the guy that I was talking about, the Christian Bale, his uh, Twitter handle is Cassandra BC. So, Joel, I also, particularly because of your new book, I want to say that this notion of Cassandra as archetype and maybe archetype that kind of shows up in humanity, specifically in women, it, it is sort of there. There are ideas about it within the world of therapy. I think it's Melanie Klein uh, and, and who's the, the Jungian? And it's Lori Leighton Shapira um, wind up sort of saying, well, you know, maybe maybe that's a thing. Uh, the, the woman who who understands things and isn't believed for a variety of reasons. Uh, yeah, it's still I, a way we understand things. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I think just sort of building off what Amanda was saying there, I think a lot of what happens here is you, you identify a cultural figure through myth and storytelling, and then you also uh, sort of present ways of discrediting them, right? Mm -hmm. So typically in prophetic figures, you know, like Tiresias is marked by his blindness, but they get marginalized in some way. So Cassandra becomes sort of a, a perfect storm of marginalization, right? She's sidelined by her gender, by her age, by her lack of authority to power, and and so she becomes this almost uh, release valve for getting people to allow ways for us to speak the truth in realization, but also providing us with the method to clamp down on it and discredit it. I more often now think of Cassandra as a whistleblower figure. Like, how do we construct people outside of power? But then the other question is, why? what are the features that Cassandra's bringing into relief? Who are the people who can't see the truth? Right. It's not just about the fact that we don't believe her, that she's not believable, but what are the structures that condition other people to not see her for someone with authority and to not hear her voice? So I want to ask both of you, but Joel, I'm going to stay with you for just a second here. Um, there's also the implication and, and the recurring motif that, that you, get, you get punished for being Cassandra. Uh, Cass mm -hmm. Cassandra gets raped by Ajax. She winds up hooking up with uh, uh, with Agamemnon. I guess like she had a lot of choice about it, but she winds up getting killed, I think, by Clytemnestra, maybe they both get killed, I can't remember. But, um, you know, and meanwhile, in the Iliad, her profit job is kind of farmed out instead to Laocoon, who says, don't open that horse, don't open that horse. Uh, and he gets torn apart by giant serpents along with his daughter. So there's this idea, just keep your mouth shut, don't predict things. Well, and this is something that I have been musing on since February of 2020, um, which is, which is uh, about the relationship between power and expertise. And uh, so two of the most famous uh, accounts or stories from antiquity, from Greek antiquity, the Iliad and Oedipus Tyrannus, start in this tension between the, the commander in chief and the expert here, the prophet they're supposed to be paying attention to. And so when I think now about Cassandra, I, I sort of want to recu recuperate the name and get rid of its marginal status because we don't listen to our experts now except when it's convenient. Right. So, um, and, and to that, uh, with, with that idea too, I know, Amanda, you took note of the fact that the person who's sometimes referred to as the Cassandra of Watergate is Martha Mitchell, who's kind of back with us with a, a, a series called Gaslighting. Yeah, so that in that case, what you've got is a situation where you've got somebody close to power who is identifying the abuse of power um, and who is not 
not really believed. But if I can, can I pick up on the point that jo- the really good point that Joel was making there, sure. which is kind of the question of whether or not one believes experts when when they when they point to problems. Um, and I think this is this is why the, the Cassandra metaphor is really important to me is because the kind of questions that we ask about our future, whether it's our, our future as individuals, our future as a species or planetary futures in relation to the climate catastrophe. Those yeah. kind of questions all have to do with the, the kind of um, the uses to which we put expertise and there's a fundamental kind of disjuncture between the kind of when we ask questions about can we do this kind of stuff and should we do that kind of stuff and that's where the cassandra metaphor sits for me smack in the middle of that can we do it should we do it you were mentioning melanie klein earlier on mm. i mean the klein identified the cassandra metaphor as a kind of the kind of as the kind of moral conscience the emotional conscience um, in society, the little voice that says you're going to get in trouble, you know, that that, that, that kind of voice in your kind of thing. Um, and it's that separation of those kind of moral, affective, emotional kind of consequences from decisions about risk and expertise that for me is really important. And it's that danger of that separation that Cassandra identifies pointing us to the question, should we do this? Is this a good idea? Right. And so, I mean, just to extend that uh, Melanie Klein metaphor, Joel, um, the, the the antithesis or at least the, the yeah, let's say the antithesis is kind of Apollo, Apollo and the Apollonian mindset, which is let's have some order here. Let's not be doing crazy talking, getting people all alarmed and upset. Uh, shut up. Uh, you know, th- there I think there is a kind of strain going on between those two things. It's one of the reasons that Cassandra is to this day, especially if they're talking about something like climate change, where we'd have to change the way that we actually live and act. Those kinds of people are either silenced or marginalized. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the position of the person as the authority to speak the truth is always being manipulated. And part of what I see is going on here with sort of this, you know, the, the divine sponsorship of the prophet um, is that, at least in Greek culture, but I also think in our own, it allows us to have sort of an out clause or exception. Because who can trust what the gods are saying? Man can't know the words of gods. And, you know, when we've, in the modern world, when we, to an extent, we reach levels of expertise and scientific knowledge that is all is so far beyond most of us that it is uh, unattainable, then we're basically almost in the same space where it's not really about any of us knowing the truth or having access to it. It's about who has the uh, political cachet and the authority to tell a story that's believable. All right. So we have to stop there with Joel Christensen, a professor of classical studies at Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs at Brandeis. Amanda Reese is historian of science based at the University of York, uh, works on the the history of the future and is the author of the book Human. Close your eyes. We're going to take a break. When we we, uh, wake up again, we'll be in Japan. And cocky like it too I told them the story They said Now what do we do? Because the sky is falling Support for this podcast Comes from Hartford HealthCare Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare 
ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I told you you're going to wake up in Japan. Uh, all right, so another person who woke up in Japan one day was Joseph Gru. He wasn't surprised to be there. He knew he was going to go there. Uh, he is the subject of a new book by our friend Steve Kemper, Our Man in Tokyo, an American Ambassador, and the Countdown to Pearl Harbor. So just give us a, a quick sketch of, of Joseph Gru. He arrives in Japan, what, in the 1930s. Uh, so he's got plenty of time to acclimate himself and familiarize himself with this world, which he's very, very eager to do, it seems. Yeah, he gets there in 1932, uh, appointed by President Herbert Hoover. It was the year after the Japanese army had invaded Manchuria without bothering to inform the Japan civilian government that that's what they were going to do. So Hoover sent him there to try to figure out what was going on in Japan, how 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 dangerous was this getting to be? And Gru was there for 10 years right up to the point that the bombs fell on Pearl Harbor. The focus of your book, as the title suggests, is his, his mounting sense that peace and accommodations are not working very well and that there is a very specific idea, uh, not just about an attack on the United States, but an attack on Pearl Harbor. Well, there was a, he, he heard a rumor in January 1941 that came to him from another minister. He reported it to the State Department. He didn't think it was possibly true. It seemed too far-fetched. The State Department passed it to the Army and the Navy because they thought it was far-fetched. The Army and the Navy had already considered it and considered it far-fetched. They thought if, if Japan had attacked, it was going to be Hong Kong, Singapore, someplace like that. You know, we just had a conversation about the kind of template of Cassandra, and there is a way in which Cassandras are mar- marginalized or their advice is discarded, or maybe even efforts are made to make sure their advice doesn't reach the the years of the real people in power. How close do you see Joseph Grew hewing to any of that? I think it's a pretty interesting metaphor for, for what he does and what he did, because it's true that often his advice was either discarded or ignored or even ridiculed uh, at the State Department. So he he probably would have been amused by that comparison. I think for me, I, the Greek person that I associate him with is Sisyphus because he kept trying over and over and over to get this message through and the, he never quite made it to the top of the hill with the rock. 
Right. And there's really two pieces to the message, right? One of the one of the pieces is, is there a way to have a different kind of agreement with Japan that doesn't involve military hostilities? And as late as November of 41, when he's helping uh, Kurusu Saburu, the ambassador, get to the U.S. to have one more uh, overture about this, he's still kind of nursing this increasingly faint pulse of an idea that that maybe there's like a, a way around all this. Uh, so that's the first part, right? Well, that's sort of the culmination of his uh, despair. He's getting close to despair at that point. But being the optimist and the diplomat that he was, he refused to give in to that. And, you know, he even on the eve of, of Pearl Harbor, which he, of course, didn't know was going to happen, he was still working for peace, trying to get FDR's message to the emperor. So he never gave up. Um, you're right about that. I, to, to go, I, you know, as a Cassandra, though, the, the two things that, that come to mind when I think of him in that context is his constant warnings to the United States government that Japan is capable of attacking the United States and Japan might do it out of desperation because uh, that's what the militarists are like here. They might do it to save face. They'll do anything to save their own their own skins in this. And of course, that was considered ridiculous by the people at the State Department. This little country, there's no way they could attack the United States or we're too big. They're too far away. And he kept warning them that, no, they are crazy. You don't understand they're crazy and they might do it. Um, and Hull, Secretary of State Hull's chief advisor, Stanley Hornbeck, ridiculed the idea that Japan would ever dare to attack the United States. So that was the advice Hull was getting right up to early November. On the other hand, he was telling the Japanese people, the Japanese leaders, if you keep bombing our, our properties in China, if you keep um, violating international rules, if you keep up these civilian atrocities, you're, you're going to make the United States so angry that there's going to come a point when the United States will will have had enough. And the Japanese thought, no, you're a, a nation of pacifists and isolationists, and FDR will never be allowed to go to war because that's the news they were getting from their censored press. So it was a big mess. He was talking to both sides, not quite being heard by either. It's true. And one thing that I learned from your book, too, is um, that he's there are sort of Cassandras on the other side, too. Uh, and I think in particular, amazingly, Admiral, Admiral Yamamoto, who is widely regarded as the architect of Pearl Harbor, justifiably uh, thought, thought of that way. But he's saying, OK, yeah, I could do this. I can figure out how to do this. We can attack Pearl Harbor, but it's not going to work out well. Tokyo is going to be burned to the ground three times. I'm going to die on the deck of a battleship. This is not a great idea. I can do it, but it's, but but I, we really shouldn't. So, I mean, it isn't just Gru. There are other people on the ground in Japan, J Japanese officials going, eh, let's not do this. You're right. And that, that, that Yamamoto quote was shocking to me when, yeah. I, when I read that, that this, this military genius – who knew that what he was doing was the best he could do and that it wouldn't work and his, it was going to destroy his country. And he says, but I got to do it. You know, I'm, I'm a soldier and I got to do it, what they tell me to do. Uh, <laughs> that just kind of blew my mind. Um, and he was right. He was totally right. I mean, uh, w once the firebombing of Japan under MacArthur started, I mean, it became really evident how terribly, terribly right he was. The other thing about this, Steve, is you know, one of the other strange prices of the scenario that you described there is a subsequent 
lack of national consensus that would seem very familiar to anybody who went through the Warren Commission or, or any of the conspiracy theories that you know, make up the huge fabric of our consciousness these days. There was this sense that, how did we not know this? Did we know this? Did we know more than we, you know, so there, and there, I think, were 10 different U.S. inquiries uh, in, into Pearl Harbor, how it could have happened, was there advance notice, and there's, meanwhile, lots of unofficial bubbling around of this. I mean, it's sort of an interesting thing, right, that, well, yeah, we some people kind of did know, and it is weird that more wasn't done about that. Yeah, it's it's one of those congressional investigations, and the Republicans were going after the Democrats, and they tried to get Gru on board in those Pearl Harbor hearings to say, when did you know war was coming? You must have known. And Gru said, never, never. I never knew it. I never believed it. I, I refused to accept it. <laughs> um, and that wasn't a very good answer because, and then, of course, you have all these crazy theories about FDR promoting, you know, he was behind the whole thing and he wanted, he was goading the Japanese to do it. And you have the Japanese saying on their side for, and they still say it, FDR caused the war. We're the victims. So it's hard to find, it's hard to find sense in much of this. It is hard to find sense in it. I just want to say also, as I kind of indicated at the top, and as I told you too, right away, my relationship with Gru is in 1945, not in 1941. And in 45, by this time, he is at times acting Secretary of State. He's back, obviously. He's not in Japan anymore. Uh, he's back and he's acting Secretary of State. And as the whole process of winding down the conflict starts to unfold and there's the Potsdam Declaration, he once again is sort of saying, you know, if you can – I mean, one of the things you deal with very well in the book is the idea of face, you know, saving face. Um, if you can give them a way out of this where they don't lose too much face and specifically where you give them some sense that the throne, the, the imperial throne won't be gone. You know, if you can do some things like that, we can wind this thing down without some huge Armageddon. Um, and, and, and the Suzuki cabinet comes in. It's clearly a peace cabinet. Uh, but – Suzuki has his own way of communicating. There's a term called mokusatsu that he uses uh, in reference to the Potsdam, Potsdam Declaration, which kind of is more of a Japanese word for silence. We're just not going to say anything. You know? <laughs> We're just, we can't say anything about that. And mm. once again, Gru can't get himself heard, the guy who knows so much about Japan. And, and once again, it also seems like there might be some reasons why he can't get himself heard, including people who maybe want to drop the bomb, maybe want to scare Russia with it. And again, he's a Cassandra. He's a Cassandra in the sense that he said, if if we don't get them to surrender before we invade Japan, it's going to be uh, a hellish bloodbath because they will die to a person to defend their divine emperor Hirohito, and he was certainly right about that. But then, of course, when Alamogordo happens and uh, the atomic bomb is tested, and we don't need to invade anymore, we can just bomb them. Um, and so his his recommendation to leave some term in the Potsdam terms that would allow for the uh, the throne to persist, but not as a divinity and not with any political power that got crossed out somewhere in between Truman leaving and Truman talking to Churchill and Stalin about it. So um, that's a tragedy. And then you're right at the end in 1945, when uh, they were defeated, the bombs had both been dropped. Um, they had rejected the Potsdam Declaration because there was no, nothing in there about the survival of the emperor. And Gru said, let's try to, you know, let's 
he went into the secretary of state's office and we don't we don't know what happened grew never wrote about it he did knock on the door he did insert himself into the discussions so uh what came out of it was an allowance for the emperorship to survive and how much grew had to do with that i don't know but i suspect quite a bit I do want to say one thing just for people listening one of the more chilling documents i encountered back in 1975 was a memo or a cable or something i think from macarthur to marshall in which MacArthur says, you know, you get those weapons, you want to use them and you want to destroy something. We better have a plan because the firebombing of Japan is going to erase all of its cities at the current pace. You're going to have to pick like four targets and then we won't bomb them. So you'll have something to blow up with your new super weapon. So that, that's kind of how things were going anyway. But Steve, I wanted to specifically talk here near the end about why Gru could be discounted. And was there a kind of sense that he sh- he had, to use a somewhat unpalatable expression from the time, gone native, that he'd been there so long, he had so many Japanese friends, his kids had Japanese friends, you know, he was raising his family there and stuff, that he didn't have the kind of perspective or maybe didn't have the kind of sang-froid that they needed to crack the whip. That was the, the knock against him by Hornbeck in the State Department. I think Hull believe that too. And that's what you hear a lot of historians, that that's what they say about, about Gru. I found that to be wrong. Um, Gru never was, he never was a Pollyanna about it. He was always very clear to, to both sides about the consequences of what actions were being um, done or, you know, considered. And he went, he did go native and to the extent that he was empathetic with the Japanese. He, he thought that that was very necessary for a diplomat. If you want to accomplish anything, you have to, they have to believe that you are acting in friendship for mutual benefit, mutual benefit. And um, if they don't believe that, then they're not going to deal with you. And that was the problem. The Japanese, it was all their way or, or no way. And for, for Hull, it was, our, our principled way or forget it. And Gru kept telling Hull, you can't co- impose preconditions, for instance, on this secret meeting, which I didn't know about at all until I'd done this research between the premier of Japan and FDR. The premier of Japan proposed this in, in late summer, early fall 1941. Let's get together and let's figure out a peace to avoid war. And Hull smothered that. And he did it because there was no reason to trust the Japanese at that point. They had broken every promise. It was, you know, I understand why he broke it, but Guru said, let's try it. Let's at least try it. Uh, We have nothing to lose except a little face. (laughs) And we couldn't do it. Right. It it does seem, this is going to segue kind of nicely. Our final segment is with Charity Dean, one of the early people who saw COVID coming to the United States. And there is the sense in your book, Steve, and we only have about a minute left, that people don't want to hear from the person who knows the most about it about it. The last thing you want to do is have a conversation with a Japan expert, particularly if you're planning to kill a lot of Japanese people in in the war. Maybe you even don't want to think about them in a nuanced, humanized way. Yeah, I'm sure there's something to that. I mean, once you're in a war, all those those complexities go out the window. I understand that. But Gru was trying to operate before the war, before we had decided that all Japanese were funny-looking little people who were deceitful and slimy. And Gru tried to combat that image even after the war began um, uh, in his speeches around the country. And that was sort of, he was told to cut that out of your speeches because it doesn't go with the war propaganda effort. All right. The book is Our Man in Tokyo, an American Ambassador and the Countdown to Pearl Harbor. It's by Steve Kemper. It is immensely readable. I say this 
you can discount what I say because Steve is a friend of mine. But I like I know a fair amount about this topic, as, as you can probably tell. And I, I thought I thought there were all kinds of disclosures in here, and it's grippingly narrated. So check it out. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to Dr. Charity Dean. So, uh, first of all, thanks to Kat Pastor and to Lily Tyson, who are the co-technical producers of this show. Uh, and then thanks to Lily Tyson, who is the senior producer of the show and is the producer of this particular episode. And I want to thank another producer in an odd way, just because of the conversation we're about to have. So, in early January, I wish I could pin down the date. I bet I could, just going through the records. At some point in January of 2020, we were working on this kind of stealth brand podcast that we were doing in addition to our regular show called Pardon Me. It was about the impeachment. We were buried in work. And at some point, Jonathan McPants sent me an email or put it in a Google Doc or something. He said, you know, this, and he, the way that he understands everything is through movies. And so he said, you know, this thing in China really seems an awful lot like the movie Contagion. And he was like the first person for me anyway, the first person who connected those dots at all. Uh, I wasn't really paying too much attention to it. I had other stuff to deal with. So it fits right into the guests that we're about to have right now. Dr. Charity Dean is the CEO, co-founder, and chairman of the public health company. She previously served as assistant director for the California Department of Public Health. And if you read Michael Lewis's book called Premonition, you already know everything that we're going to talk about, or most of what we're going to talk about right now. But it's very exciting for me. Uh, Dr. Charity Dean, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So slightly ahead of Jonathan McPins, I think in De- maybe in December of 2019, you wrote down somewhere the words, it has started. Can you tell me about that? Do, first of all, do I have the, the month and year correct? <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah, it was my, uh, my birthday resolutions that I do every year. But that year, my resolutions were a little different. And so how did you know to write down it has started? I mean, this really is... It's a twinkle in the eye for an awful lot of people, this idea that there might be something going on in China. What made you write those words down? You know, it's funny because I what I would not have advertised or shared with anyone except for my dad, who I shared it with, that very, very strong suspicion that it has started. And by it, I mean a large groundswell of a communicable disease that was going to hit California shores and sweep over the United States and that it was already out of containment and we had probably already lost the opportunity to stop it even though I was going to do my damnedest to try. I would have never shared that but Michael Lewis, if you ever let Michael Lewis into your house, (laughs) just be aware He's going to pull pictures off the wall. He's going to look at sticky notes on your bathroom mirror. And I let him. I gave him an open permission slip to read everything he wanted around the house. And he found that picture of my grandmother with my birthday resolutions on the back. So he's the one that found it and dug in. Yeah. So the reason that Michael Lewis was interested in taking your house apart uh, was because he had already found out that you were one of the people who tried initially to communicate the seriousness of the situation, the fact that it had escaped containment. And, and one of your tools 
was a whiteboard, right? One of the things that you would work on is you would just you would just run the numbers out and just find out right. to, to your own astonishment how quickly California could get to 20 million cases. But can you say a little bit more about that? Set the scene for people. Sure. Well, I'll say, you know, my, my sense that it had started is really um, this isn't something mythical or the force, like as in Star Wars, what this really is, is, you know, decades of expertise of watching signals that are elevated above the noise and seeing scattered data points that taken collectively indicate a strong signal that something is happening. That's what I've done my whole life. And so I wasn't the only one, you know, other really smart signal watchers like Carter Mesher and other Wolverines had the the same concerns and suspicions. So, you know, whiteboarding, I, I call it my slingshot. I've always loved the story of David and Goliath. And what I love about the David and Goliath story is, you know, little David had been training his whole life with his slingshot. He knew how to take down bears and lions. So when it was time for the real battle against Goliath, he didn't want fancy tools. He wanted the tool that he knew how to use. And one of my mottos for myself is never take an untested weapon into battle. And what that means is when the stakes are high and it's a setting of uncertainty with a high threat, I want my whiteboard and I want the tools that I trust. And so absolutely, I was whiteboarding out what I call long math or dirty math, which is, you know, my goal is not to be academically correct. It's to be fast and directionally correct. I didn't know there was a term for that, but I'm reading the book Super Forecasting right now and understanding there's actually a methodology to doing that. You know, how do you take sketchy proxy data points, approximate some kind of truthiness and arrive at a directionally correct forecast? That's exactly what I do with my whiteboard. I just want to say Phil Tetlock has been on our show and uh, I when I teach, I sometimes teach his work too. So I know what you're talking about right away. So yeah, well, there's so many things that I, I want to ask you about this, but maybe the first thing to say is you just mentioned Wolverine. So we're going to have to explain this. At a certain point, you get a call or an email or something, and you wind up meeting this group of, of six or seven. They're all men at that time, I think. And, and who are these Wolverines? You know, apparently it's this group of guys who are the world's experts on pandemics who meet when there's any threat of a pandemic anywhere in the world. And they were initially assembled during the Bush White House in 2005, 2006, and all of them kept in touch, although they'd all been scattered into different positions. They they kept in touch and they reassembled, you know, in January 2020. And it was the first or second week of February that they pulled me in. Right. And by the way, so Wolverines comes from the movie Red Dawn. I've seen or heard you in other occasions refer to that as a silly movie. Please don't do that. Uh, Red Dawn is Patrick Swayze doing Aeschylus, basically. So the other thing is you were talking about decades of expertise, years of research. I don't want to ruin our burgeoning friendship. But from what I can tell, you were a pretty weird kid. This is something you got interested in at a very early age. My whole life. My whole life I've been uh, interested would be an understatement. I would say um, obsessed. I'm an obsessive extremist and have had one focus my whole life. And that's the kind of biological threats that are coming that the world faces today. You know, the days of just one outbreak or one epidemic happening are gone. The world has changed. It's what I call trifectas where you've got, you know, a climate driven natural disaster going on with protests or population unrest, geopolitical, and then you've got disease on top of it. So those trifecta threats is what I've been obsessed with my whole entire life. 
it is public health, but public health is really a misnomer for uh, managing intersecting physical world threats. So from the time I was a little girl, man, that is what I wanted to do. So because our show today is about Cassandra's, we have to talk about the kind of weird tension that you encounter. And, and the tension, the way that I would describe it, because I, I remember January and February of 2020 pretty vividly, was everybody wanted good information. Everybody wanted solid inf- information. People wanted to know the the unknowns, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. I mean, we're in this terrifying dilemma and it's getting more and more serious and there's a real desire for good hard information and that went on for many more months. But there was a contrasting rejection of good information if it seemed too dire. And that seemed to be what you were running into on multiple fronts, right? The more correct you were, the less popular you got. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think that's true, but I also don't fault any decision maker for having a difficult time wrapping their brain around exponential growth. I have a difficult time wrapping my brain around it, hence the whiteboard and the utility of actually doing the math right in front of them on a whiteboard. I wouldn't say it's a governor's or a decision maker's job to be an expert in this. It's mine, which means it's my job to explain it in a way that people can understand. And that's why showing the long math and actually mapping it out exactly what's coming, which was the shape of a tsunami wave, was really useful. So it was incredibly frustrating in January to know what was coming and be powerless in communicating that to decision makers. Right. And so, you know, when the movie comes along and Anya Joy Taylor is playing Charity Dean or or whatever, there's going to be a scene because it happened where somebody says to you, we don't want to scare people. And you say, but people should be scared of this. I mean, to me, that kind of sums up the problem in a very few words. Yeah, it it does. There's this burden of knowing what's coming and not being able to create shared visibility. You know, I liken it to fire. I learned so much from Cal Fire and the U.S. Forest Service and County Fire Um, Because I was in in the team running, you know, fire response with these guys. And what's unique about what fire has done is they've created a shared visibility and a shared understanding of threat levels. Even when the fire is small, they look at the conditions, the wind, the climate, the slope of the hill, and they're able to predict how bad it will get. And then they put interventions in place. So the fire guys have created this incredible shared visibility of the threat and what's needed for the response. That does not exist for biological threats. And so that was the challenge in January and February. There was no shared reality among decision makers. Right. Can you talk a little bit about how it feels to know uh, certain things or to have the grasp of the situation that you you clearly had and, and just not have that get traction in a lot of places where you needed to get traction. I mean, what were the kind of feelings roiling around inside of you as a result of that? Yeah, it was um, incredibly challenging. Um, I was a crazy person. Anyone who would listen would get a whiteboard explanation from me of the math and how this was going to spread and how bad it would get. You know, I I developed a heart arrhythmia during that time. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I was obsessed with trying to get this message out. And I do not, again, I do not blame the decision makers or others above me on the org chart who couldn't understand it. I really blame myself for not being able to explain it or make it 
visible. I very much internalized it as a personal failure that I failed at the one thing I was born to do, which was to create visibility and an operational response plan to to this threat. Yeah, I don't think you're being entirely fair to yourself, but that's that's your business, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, there were risks to you. I mean, not risks on a comparable scale to half a million people or a million people dying, but there were there are risks to be the person pushing an unpopular opinion, sometimes putting stuff in writing that a boss doesn't want you to put in writing, creating electronic <laughs> records and stuff like that. I don't know. Was that anywhere in your thinking? I could get totally screwed for doing all of this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. I was aware of it. I was very much aware that my role was to stick my neck out and share the message and not be polite, not sugarcoat it, and that it may very well cost me my job. But that was why I was in the role. In other words, having a a state health officer who's a coward does not serve the governor's interest, does not serve the public's interest. Having a state health officer who's brave enough that she would say, you know what, I'm going to stand on this truth and spread the message, even if it means I'm fired. That's exactly what the community needs. That's that's why we have that role. And so it didn't bug me at all, knowing that um, I was putting my own neck on the line. I was born to do this. Like, it's the whole point that we exist, right? Mm-hmm. Those leading these kinds of high stakes situations, they're designed to have at least one person, ideally a group, who will put their neck on the line to try and spread the word of the threat because I knew the clock was ticking, right? Like every day that went by, we were losing our shot at containment every day. And then we lost it. I would say we probably lost our shot at containment in January, you know, maybe at best early February. And once you lose your shot at containment, it's over. It's all mitigation from that point on. So from my perspective, that's why I was a crazy person is, Every minute, every hour that went by, we were losing any chance we had to prevent what was becoming inevitable. Right. My final question is, and I'm sure this has already happened, but imagine that you're standing in a classroom or amphitheater or something in front of X number of freshly scrubbed public health officials out of university programs. They're all in their 20s or people with comparable jobs who are going to have to do this thing to warn people in situations where warnings are not necessarily welcome. What do you say to them? What what do you say to them based on your experience? What did you learn that would help them that maybe you didn't know? Well, the first thing I would say to them really is about heart motives and why we do what we do, that our goal is public servants. And I still see myself that way. You know, that's the, the mission that I'm on is everything we do is to protect and defend our democracy, vulnerable communities, the economy. We are literally at the service of a much higher good and cause. And it helps put priorities in order. We don't worry about our own reputation, our own you know, name recognition. We worry about optimizing for what's best for everyone. But the second thing I would say is courage is a muscle memory. That muscle memory is forged in difficult times. So look for the people covered in battle scars. Those are the people you want to imprint on. Do not imprint on the people who are risk averse or maximizing for political optics, because the entire role of a health officer is to be brave in the face of uncertainty. You can't teach that. There's no shortcut. There's only one way to develop that, and that's going through 
trial after trial after trial and getting the muscle memory of what it feels like to make brave predictions and stick your own neck out. Wow. What a great answer. Uh, Dr. Charity Dean is CEO, co-founder, and chairman of the Public Health Company, previously served as assistant director for the California Department of Public Health, and is a bona fide American hero. Thank you very much for talking to me. It's my pleasure. And we'll be back tomorrow.